You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. Ayn Rand's third appearance on The Tonight Show, recorded December 13th, 1967. Carson footage supplied courtesy of Carson Entertainment Group. Oh, the male response has been uh, tremendous. She is the co-owner and editor of The Objectivist, which is a monthly journal which expresses her philosophy of objectivism. Would you welcome back, please, Miss Ayn Rand. Nice to see you again. I'm delighted to be here always. How, does, uh, how are you affected by the holiday season? Some people are uh, become exuberant and happy. Other people, for some reason, seem to get kind of emotionally unstrung during the holiday season. How, how does it affect you? One I'm way or the chronically other? happy. You're very chronically very happy. happy? That's right. Is that a good way to be, chronically happy? I think so. People say, uh, people say, there's that old cliche again, people say, they say, that most people are unhappy more than they're happy. Would you think that's a fair appraisal? If you speak of others, yes, probably, unfortunately. And more often than not, it's their own fault. When people say, this is, they ask you a question, what you want out of life, people say, I want to be happy, right? That's the ordinary answer. What does that mean to you to be happy? To achieve those things which I want. First of all, to be creative. Second, to have my husband. To be creative in your work? My career? And my husband. Creative work and love are the two top values. If you have that, everything else is unimportant. That pretty much in a, in a small capsule form is the idea of objectivism, isn't it, in a way? Oh, no. Well, I mean that your work and the... No, objectivism the highest, is more than that. Well, didn't you say that the highest moral purpose in objectivism is the right of, is the, for an individual to be, to be happy? Oh, yes. But objectivism will tell you how to do it. Ah, well, because I didn't mean to distill it down that small. Uh, no, you see, there have been an awful lot of schools of philosophy which assume or claim that they can tell you how to be happy and they achieve the exact opposite. Uh, our purpose is really to establish and make possible the value of men, a proper view of men, and tell men how to achieve it in himself. The previous times that you've been here, Miss Rand, we've talked uh, more or less uh, a lot of uh, political philosophy. Um, but you, in your book, have uh, you talk about uh, literature, and I was amazed to find out who your favorite author is. Now, if you were to ask me who is Ayn Rand's favorite author, who would you say? You, you might choose uh, maybe a uh, Hemingway or Faulkner. Mickey Spillane is one of your favorite authors, right? One of. One of. If you want to speak. Of all time, I would say Victor Hugo. Victor Hugo. But of <coughs> authors living today, well, yes, I would say it's a close one between Mickey Spillane and Donald Hamlet. Now, people would say, why Mickey Spillane uh, right off? Because he's a romanticist. First of all, let me explain that the trouble with today's literature yeah, let's is talk that about romanticism it. is dead. There is no such thing as romantic literature. Present company accepted, of course. No. But, now let me explain what romanticism is. It is a school of literature based on Aristotle's aesthetic principle, that the purpose of literature is to present things as they might be and ought to be. In other words, to project that which is possible to men, to project man's highest potential. That is, in effect, romantic literature. 
there is no serious writer today whom one could call a romanticist. And the last remnant of romanticism exists only in popular literature. Among those, Miki Stulen is probably the most talented, particularly in his early novels. He, I'm not an admirer of his present ones, but he is a great literary talent in a light fiction style. And those are the only romantics left. It's plot structure and the sense of drama, the sense of conflict, and above all, the sense of morality, the conflict of good and evil. Even if, in Nikis Pilenitsyn, on a very primitive level, you do not find it in any other so-called serious literature. You find it only in detective stories today. It's the conflict of the good and evil as black and white absolutes instead of the mishmash of grain that uh, today's culture goes for. I assume, then, that you're not one who likes to go to the Broadway theater to see some playwright write uh, what they call a slice of life where they depict uh, all of the ills of society as, and, the, and the justification being, well, this is society, this is his. People are uh, animalistic and they are uh, terrible at times and they, and they show this as a shock value. Well, I would say to begin with, they have to speak for themselves. I don't think that people are animalistic. I don't think it is a slice of life. I'd like to know whose life and what life. That is not life as I see it. And even if there are such people, which I doubt, because it is all uh, symbolic exaggeration. Uh, it is not really even. But even if there were a what importance are such people? It isn't the mindless, it isn't the brutal, it isn't the ugly in men that one should be concerned with. It is man's highest potential. Above all, his creative mind, his values. And you know what's very strange? In the light of the film you were showing just a few minutes ago, mm -hmm. the film of Colonel Glenn in space, how dare modern writers present men as futile, helpless, frustrated, unable to achieve anything. Yet After that, seeing that. Pardon? After seeing that, what After man can achieve. That, and yet that is the predominant, not exclusive, but predominant theme of modern literature. Man's helplessness, man's impotence, man's evil. Then, then I assume you would justify the reason for those things existing, because they always use the cliche, but that's what the people want. If you write about murder and, and rape, and all of a man's uh, peccadillos, if that's the right word, more than peccadillos, uh, they say that's, that's what the audience likes to see, as witness the way they go to see it. Uh, they do like brutality, violence, in great true, abundance. If that were true, I wouldn't be here today. You don't think that is true, that people want to see that? To see that? Not according to my career, no. But it's borne out when you have movies that... Uh, of oh. great violence uh, and things like that. Uh, they read newspapers. That the National Enquirer. I don't know. You you're probably not a subscriber to the National Enquirer. No, uh, neither, no. Nor am I. But that has a bigger circulation than the New York Times. So what? Well, all I'm saying is that you don't. I mean, there are people, but there are all kinds of people. Yes. What I'm concerned with is the people that matter, the people that count, those who are important, the Rather. creative people, the thinking people. The people who are after some rational goal, the rational examples of humanity, the brutes and violent, uh, mindless thugs are not representatives of humanity. Have you seen Albie's new play, Everything in the Garden? I wouldn't go to see anything by Albie. You wouldn't? No. Why not? Oh, because I take him at his word. 
because he has declared that life is senseless and absurd. And if it's true, that would mean that his play is part of life, of course, and is also senseless and absurd. <laughs> In other words, you think he's given up hope for the human race and portrays it as uh, the worst part of it? Uh, I don't think he even is concerned with the human race. I think he's probably presenting life as he sees it. But if one sees life that way, I don't think one should advertise it in public. Well, the next time Mr. Alby was with us, I'll have to ask him about that and uh, see what he says. Well, don't have me... No, I won't. No, 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 no. No, I don't think that's a good way to get a show going. You just, you know, we've never had a murder live on our stage before. And I don't want to start with violence here. There would be nothing to murder. Hmm? There would be nothing to murder there. No, you would probably just both express your views and, uh, well, let me do this and we'll come right back. Right now. Um, you mentioned Victor Hugo's one of your favorite, Mickey Spillane. Uh, what do you think of the James Bond pictures now? Uh... Fleming, uh, I assume you would kind of like at times, because he's a pretty good uh, constructionist, isn't he? Oh, yes. He's one of my favorites. Well, what happens to those movies when they're transferred to the screen? They're almost uh, well, a, strictly a satirical thing, aren't they? That's what they've become. The first one was not. The first James Bond movie, Dr. No, was excellent. It was really a good example of what a romantic movie should be. Progressively, they become more and more satirical. They're making fun of their own heroes. They're making fun of themselves. They're making fun of the audience that likes them. They are trying to spit at the very thing on which they're writing, by which they're profiting. They're trying to hold the audience's interest by the appeal of a plot adventure story, by presenting a strong, attractive hero, and then undercut it by laughing at, at the hero, at the story, and at the audience, as if saying, you are sucker. <coughs> if you are so naive as to want something great or to have ideals. It is a slap at the audience's face. The anti-hero thing seems to be the thing now. A uh, man who can get away uh, with almost anything and be admired uh, uh, well, in the movies. That's, that's the spirit of modern literature, and they have succeeded, you know, at what they set out to do. What's the first novel you remember reading? first novel I remember reading... A novel in a children's magazine in French at the age of nine, which was actually a magazine for boys, and it was an adventure story. And I think more than anything else, it made me decide to become a writer. It, I, I was enormously thrilled by it. It made me see the potentiality at of nine. what one can do with writing. Oh, yeah, I decided to be a writer at nine. Consciously. At nine, I was reading C. Jane Walk. Yeah. See, see the house. I think that's what that's what held me back. Yeah. Don't you think most children's books and uh, don't you think most children's books of that ilk are really wrong to write things for children, even very young children, not to challenge them any more than that. Oh, see I the house. See the, the red ball. Oh, I definitely think so. Children are capable of more than that, aren't they? Even at that early age, of not all children, but uh, oh yes, and that's very interesting. It. Psychological experiment being made recently, proving that children are really held back by the kind of slow educational process to which they're subjected. The children are capable of much more than adults give them credit for. Even at five and six they have found her. So I understand. 
Because now some schools are teaching children algebra, even at the age seven and eight. And well, the concepts to certain children, not all children, have the mathematical... Uh, you don't mean the new mathematics. Some of the new mathematics, they're teaching algebra in the very, very young grades. I'm not so sure. I would rather not have no opinion on that because it's a very stupid subject. The manner in which they're teaching new mathematics. Do you think it's important to make a child, say a child in school, uh, many of the, the schools require a foreign language, either French or Spanish or something, as a requirement to go into college. And yet the child has no affinity for languages. Some people just have a, a tremendous difficulty assimilating another language. It does not come easy. Their talents lie in another direction, and yet they are pushed to pass a language which they may or may not ever use. Do you think that's... Uh, Is that it should be required? No, I don't think so. I don't think a child should be required to do anything for which you cannot explain the value of to him. In other words, a child should know what he's doing and why. And uh, the study of languages, I think, is, well, one of the least important issues. My, my one son was just having a terrible time in one language, uh, as I did. I had a terrible time, and I, for the life of me, going through high school, and people kept saying, well, you see, it'll teach you discipline, and it'll teach oh, yeah. you, and all it taught me was, you know... Uh, not discipline, but a, a tremendous dislike for it. Oh, uh, well, then, let your poor child off. Oh, I wish I could let him off, but schools don't let them off. They say you must have two years of Spanish or French or Swahili, and it is required for an entrance exam. You and it what, seems Ellie? to be too bad. Oh, it is too bad. But you know what they do not teach them? In fact, they try to stop their development. They should be taught logic. They should be taught reason. They're actively discouraged by today's methods. They don't have a course in logic in any elementary or even pre-high school, and very few high schools have a course in logic. And they should. I didn't have one when I was in high school, and I, I wish I had that later. I would have given up all of the, uh, the Latin and all of the algebra for a course in, uh, in logic or current events as to what is going on in the world. Well, that's a contradiction, isn't it? Huh? <laughs> yes, you mean logic and what's going on, yes. Uh, that is, that's... That, uh, that is... Uh, That is David Susskind is a dichotomy, you know. Uh, yes. Yes, that's what he would say. Do I have to do this? Huh? Okay. Then we will uh, come right back. Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.